know it's uh, the end of the year, but this morning you're going to need your full mental abilities. Are you up for the challenge? I know you've had a lot of sugar this week, too. Um, <laughs> I know two of us have. <clears throat> One of my prayers for this church specifically every Saturday night and really in Sunday morning, um, is that God would be preparing your minds and hearts for worship. It's one of our common statements that I make when I'm praying for our church, that God would be preparing our hearts and minds for worship. And for worship, I, I don't simply mean the singing, but everything that we do here on Sunday mornings. All of this is corporate, gathered worship from the fellowship to the scripture readings, to financial giving, to serving, to the sermon, to the reading of God's word. It's all about worship. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to pull together several loose strands of theology and show you how they all fit together. This is going to take a little bit of work on your part. Um, I'm not a big fan of arty movies. Uh, movies that are weird for the sake of being weird. But I'm also not a big fan, generally speaking, of the big blockbuster superhero type movies either. I think those are like cotton candy for the brain. Uh, and I love cotton candy. But you can sit there and be wowed for a couple of hours by explosions and special effects and without having to think. And in the end, there's really nothing to it, just like cotton candy. I prefer movies or TV shows that, that, that show character development, that tell a good story, that make me think, that leave me wanting more. And I love it when a, when a writer can skillfully take several seemingly disconnected storylines and weave them into one complete story and show how it's all connected. And the Bible is the best example of this. Because not only did God weave all of the stories to show us the Messiah, but he, he used many different authors and several centuries, over several centuries to do this. So get ready, because as I said, we have a lot of work to do today. Let me give you another thing to think about. Do you remember the WWJD bracelets from the 90s? They were all the rage 20, 25 years ago, it was Christian marketing genius. They sold millions. But what if WWJD, what would Jesus do? What if that was the wrong question? I could argue that it was, but it's an okay question, especially when you simply need just a, a moral answer. But generally, we need to go deeper than mere morality. Being merely moral doesn't make us Christ-like. So here's what I mean. This week, one of the largest typhoons to ever hit the Philippines um, blew through that area. What would Jesus do? He'd probably tell it to be quiet. We know this from the Bible. That's what he did. He also healed the sick. He also raised the dead back to life. So maybe this is kind of an absurd example, WWJD, but the fact is that Christians do not believe that Jesus simply came to give humans a good example to follow in every possible situation. That's not what we believe. 
even though Jesus is a good example. So don't get me wrong, but that's not why he came. You don't have to be a Christian to answer the question, what would Jesus do, and get that right. It doesn't lead you to Christ. It leads to moralism, to being a good person. So maybe a better question is this, what has Jesus done? And then the follow-up question to that, the one that we have to take home with us today, is, is what will the gospel make of us? So when you look at what Jesus has done, what will the gospel make of you? How will it change you? How has it changed you? So turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, we'll pick up our study of John again next week, Lord willing. But for today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 52. We're really just going to focus on one verse and really just kind of one statement from verse 45. But let me begin in verse 32 so we understand the context of his statement. Mark 10, 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those uh, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Father, I pray that you would give us sight to see this morning the things that you would have for us. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's an interesting phrase there in verse 45, at the end of verse 45, that really is what we're going to focus on this morning. It's this phrase, to give his life as a ransom for many. So right here, Jesus gives us really the first explicit New Testament teaching concerning the redeeming work of the Messiah. He is saying that he would suffer for sins as a substitute for those who trust him. Jesus did not simply give his life as an example. He's not simply a martyr for a good cause. He wasn't an example of selflessness, of of dying for that cause. He died as a ransom for many. I want to lay out for you today four reasons that we need a ransom and the ways that Jesus provides that for us. But before we look at these reasons, though, I, I really need to address why we need to understand these things. See, many Christians are content to say something like, I accepted Jesus into my life. Isn't that enough? Do I need to study theology too? Yes, because we're all theologians. Some of us are just really bad ones. Um, We all have beliefs about God, but many of those beliefs are just simply wrong. All of us who claim Christianity, we would say that we understand the nature of salvation. We would say that we understand what it takes to be saved. But then we have no idea what to do with verses like Philippians 2.12, which says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work for our own salvation. What does that mean? Or how about Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, when Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm saved now, right? Perhaps the most troubling passage that we sometimes have a difficulty with is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, in which Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare from, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. According to Jesus, those people in Matthew chapter 7, they thought that they were saved. They thought that they understood the, the nature of salvation. They believed deep down that they were Christians, and Jesus said to them, I never knew you. I think every church, I think really in in all of our churches, there are people who are sitting there that think that they're Christians, and Jesus says, I don't know you. Now, I don't want to give you a burden today that, that you don't need, but this is serious business. It would be unloving and, and downright sinful of me to, to give you an assurance of salvation where it's not deserved. And this is for all of us. And so we are to do, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we are to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this is about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So here's why I'm pleading with you today to examine yourselves. This passage, this verse, verse 45, Mark 10, 45, and this statement to give his life as a ransom for many is, I believe, the most important statement in the gospel according to Mark. And it's one of the most important statements in the entire scripture, if you can quantify it that way, which you really kind of can't. 
Mark, John Mark was his full name, he was the Apostle Peter's assistant and protege. He writes this gospel probably essentially from Peter's point of view. And the climax of the book is in chapter 8. The climax is when we read Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And this marked, that confession in Mark chapter 8, marked a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From that point on in Mark's gospel, Jesus is headed to the cross. And Jesus himself proclaimed early on in Mark's gospel that his mission was to preach, was to proclaim the good news. In fact, Mark chapter 1 verse 38 says this, Let's go on to the next towns, Jesus says, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came out. So what was Jesus preaching? He was preaching that he was the Christ. What is the mission of the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? To give his life as a ransom for many. Pop Christianity doesn't really want you to think about that much. Pop Christianity tells us how to, how to have our best life right now. Pop Christianity tells you how to be a better father, a better mother. Pop Christianity is popular because it looks to solve popular problems. And Jesus looked at those problems. He looked at the sick. He looked at the hungry. He looked at the blind. He looked at the oppressed and he had compassion on them. But he didn't heal all of them. He didn't fix all of those problems. He looked beyond the temporary problems of this life and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And so I want to give you four reasons that we needed a ransom and the ways in which Jesus completely paid that ransom. And the first is this. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin. Let that statement sink in for just a moment. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin. We could say it this way. The wages of sin is death. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that when Adam sinned in the garden, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And then death spread to all men because all sinned. And God is a just God. And the moment sin entered into the world and death through sin, he would have been justified, he would have been right to destroy all things because sin is such an offense to his holiness. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loves us, set apart for himself a people for his own possession, the people of Israel. And he provided a way of escape for them. He gave them the law to show them their sin. He set up a sacrificial system in order to, to temporarily cover their sin while they waited for a Savior who would once and for all defeat sin and death. And so on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur as it's known today, the high priest would make sacrifices for the sins of the people. He would sacrifice first a, a young bull for his own sins and the sins of his family. And then he would sacrifice a young goat for the sins of the people. He would enter into the tabernacle. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on the altar for the forgiveness of sins. And when they did this, when the high priest did this, they were supposed to look forward to a permanent sacrifice. So Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 tells us, Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. The law is just a shadow of the Messiah. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Jesus became the permanent sacrifice for us. Jesus is the new and better sacrificial lamb. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says, As it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, the author of Hebrews says, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So I know that this is a lot. I've just kind of thrown a lot of theology at you. And it can be confusing. But let me ask you just a couple of questions. Who is a better high priest? The first high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother, or Jesus? Who is the better or what is the better tabernacle? The tent in the wilderness that the Israelites would carry around with them or Jesus' own body? What is a better sacrifice? The blood of bulls and of goats or Jesus' own blood? I want to acknowledge nobody likes to be told that they're a sinner. In fact, there are people who are not here today precisely because I openly talk about humanity's sinfulness, about their sinfulness. None of us like to be reminded about how bad we can be or are. In fact, we like to think of ourselves as pretty good people. But remember this, Hitler's not our standard. Jesus is. Hitler's not our standard for being a good person. That's kind of what everybody always goes to. I might do some bad things, but I'm not like Hitler, or I'm not like whoever. But he's not our standard. Jesus is. And when we look at ourselves in light of Jesus, we should see that we actually are kind of bad, and we deserve to die as a penalty for sin. But Jesus died for us. He became the sacrifice But God shows his great love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8 says. We deserve to die as a penalty for sin, but Jesus died for us. That's the first um, thing that we need to see today. And the second is this. We deserve to drink of the cup of the Lord's wrath towards sin. We deserve to drink of the cup of the Lord's wrath towards sin. So not only does God's justice demand that a sacrifice be made in order to cover the wages of sin, 
But God's wrath must be satisfied so that His holiness is not compromised when He forgives sinners. In other words, because of God's holiness, He cannot just act like sin never happened. It must be dealt with. And so when we cry out to God and ask for forgiveness, He doesn't just simply say, ah, don't worry about it, it's fine. He can't. He looks at sin with righteous anger. He is justified in that wrath. That means that the question is not, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? The question is, how can a holy God save sinners from hell? It's because of His love. It's because of His love. The holy and just God is love. So God sent His Son, who offered Himself willingly. And it was Jesus' shed blood that, the big word is propitiated, or satisfied His holy wrath toward sin. Listen to Romans chapter 3. You're familiar probably with verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a lot there in those verses, but but listen to this. God would not be a just God if He said to you, don't worry about it, your sins have been wiped away, let's pretend like it never happened. Instead, we acknowledge that we've sinned. We confess that we are sinners, and Jesus steps in and says, I paid the penalty for that. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus because of our sins. Jesus drank of the cup of the Lord's wrath. It's because of God's holiness and justice that He can pour out His wrath against sin. And it is because of His love that He can look at the cross and say, It is finished. This is why He can pass over former sins, as verse 25 of Romans 3 says. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered about that? Why doesn't God inflict full punishment for sins immediately as soon as they are committed? Because of the cross. Because of His forbearance, His patience. Let me give you an example. Just turn back to Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> Exodus thirty-two eleven. People of Israel have made it into the desert. They've made it to Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up onto the mountain, received the law from God, the Ten Commandments. He's gone up several times, received many instructions from the Lord. He's gone on behalf of the people to the mountain of God. And at one point when he was up there, the people were sick and tired of waiting for Moses. And so they convinced Aaron, his brother, to make them a golden calf. And God at that point is about to destroy these people, these people that he has saved from their slavery in Egypt. 
And in verse 11, we read this. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster upon your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. There had to be a punishment for their idolatry. And God looked at his promises. Moses is pleading with God. This is a lesson for Moses. Moses isn't changing God. God is unchangeable. This is a lesson for Moses and for us. There has to be a punishment for their idolatry. And Moses pleads with God's promises. Remember your promises, Lord. And so God relents. And essentially, he looks towards the cross. And Jesus took that punishment on himself. He drank of the cup of the Lord's wrath. He gave his life as a ransom for many, even those who are idol worshipers. And the third reason that he did this was because we are separated by God, from God by our sins. We are separated from God by our sins. Because we are separated from God, we need someone to bring us back into fellowship with God, to reconcile us. So that passage there in Exodus chapter 32, we are the people at the bottom of that mountain. We are the idolaters bowing down to a golden calf, whatever that is. Maybe it's fitting to pray those things at Christmas. Um, Because of sin, we are the object of God's wrath. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's the the picture of God as a holy judge on the top of the mountain, about to destroy all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, all idolatry, all sin, and Jesus going to God as our advocate, as our mediator, and saying, take me, I'll go for them. It's the picture of us before a holy and righteous judge who is looking at all of our debts, all of our sins, and about to sentence us to death. And yet we have an advocate. We have a mediator who's better than Moses because he doesn't say, remember your promise. He says, I have fulfilled your promise. The debt has been paid in full. And so we are reconciled. And so in God's ledger, the columns of our debts have been replaced by the column of Jesus' credit, Jesus' payment. Man, who was once estranged and alienated from God, is now at peace with him. The hostility has been removed. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Through Adam's sin in the garden, man moved out of fellowship with God and needed to return, and the Son of Man brings us back. Reconciliation is God providing peace where before there was only hostility. The Son of Man came not to... uh, 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the last reason that we needed a ransom is because we are in bondage to sin in the kingdom of Satan. We're in bondage to sin in the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus, in giving his life as a ransom for many, provides redemption. One of my, one of my pet peeves is when people take Bible verses out of context and use them for their own purposes. Probably one of the best examples is Jesus' quote, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I'd be willing to bet that many of the people who use this verse don't even realize that it was Jesus who said it. It's kind of a popular political slogan these days. People use it from anything to some kind of conspiracy theory on the History Channel about aliens or government cover-ups. They use it to talk about sexual orientation or the truth about yourself. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Listen to John chapter 8. Verse 31, he says this. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The truth is, we are slaves to sin. And because we are slaves to sin, we need somebody to free us, to redeem us. And this redemption brings us to this concept of of ransom that Jesus is talking about here in Mark 10.45. A ransom is a price paid to redeem someone from bondage or captivity. Now, in our modern concept of ransom, we usually think of kidnapping, right? And so a ransom is paid to the kidnappers to secure the hostage's release. But this is where this breaks down. Because sin and Satan do not have the ability to demand a ransom from God. Satan does not have the ability to demand anything from God. God is not holding us hostage. He's not demanding a ransom. In fact, it was, it was God who sent his son to pay the ransom for us. The ransom is simply the price paid to redeem. So we are redeemed from bondage because as John writes in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And when Christ came, he died, Hebrews 2.15 says, to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In fact, Colossians 1.13 says that, that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Without Christ, we are in bondage to sin and the kingdom of Satan, and we need a redeemer. We need someone to to walk into the kingdom of Satan, to look him in the eyes, to look into the eyes of sin and death and say, as Moses did to Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus did that. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb. He dies as a sacrifice for us. 
Jesus died as a propitiation for our sins in order to remove us from the wrath of God that we deserved. Jesus went up on the mountain for us as our mediator, reconciling us to God, bringing us back into fellowship with him. And Jesus redeemed us from being slaves to sin. And so as Romans 6.11 says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I know this is a lot to chew on. If you're trying to take notes, I'm sorry. (laughs) This is a lot to understand, and maybe it's a little too much, especially on a Sunday like this. But I think in order to help us understand this, God in His mercy gave us this next passage to give us hope. Look at this next, very next interchange that Jesus has. So it's verse 46, Mark 10, 46. Let me read this again. He has just said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we see this. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus didn't stay where he was. He didn't stay by the roadside begging. Do you understand he just lost his job by getting healed? He lost his income. Now he's not a a sympathy case. Now he has no reason to be sitting by the roadside begging. Now he has to find income some other way. He didn't stay there. He got up and he followed Jesus on the way, it says in that last verse. See, Jesus will meet you right where you are, separated from God, slaves to sin, facing the cup of the Lord's wrath, destined for death, and he gave his life as a ransom to cover all of that. Do you see how huge that is? Do you understand how incredibly massive this good news is? But the good news doesn't end there. Because not only does he meet you right where you are, he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't leave you by the side of the road. He says, go your way, but your way becomes his ways, and so we follow him, just as Bartimaeus does. This phrase here in Mark 10, 45, changed the course of human history for all of eternity. It has to change your life. We need, we need less of what would Jesus do. Let that come later. We need to answer the question, what has Jesus done? And as you begin to understand what Jesus has done in giving his life as a ransom for many, you need to ask yourself that next question, what will this make of you? What do you want Jesus to do for you, as he asks Bartimaeus here? 
If you really understand why you need a ransom, you're going to understand that what you want Jesus to do for you is make you well. You need life. You need to be set free. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So if you are a Christian, you're not a slave to sin, no matter how chained you feel. Know Christ. Then he says, get in his word, study and understand this truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Get to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Son will set you free. Let's pray. Father, our greatest need is to know Jesus Christ. Help us to know the truth. That it was Jesus who came, not to set an example for us, although he certainly does set an example. Not to be just simply a good teacher, although he really is a good teacher. But to give his life as a ransom for many. To set apart for himself a people for his own possession. Father, help us to know Christ. To love Christ. To worship Christ. And in so doing, glorify your name forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.